Good morning, everybody. Grab a seat. It's good to have you here. Um, we are going to be in 2 Samuel 10. So if you have a Bible, that's where we're going to be. It's actually a chapter back from where we were last week, which is 2 Samuel 11. And there's a reason for that. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, but it's going to be a passage that's going to be helpful. I know we've got a lot of people coming and going. It's the summertime, lots of travel. Um, so if that's you and you're wondering where we are at as a people, we are still walking through probably in the back 30, 25% of our look at the story of David in his major episodes. So it's the wide story of David. But what we're also looking for is the surprising brilliance of Christ as he appears in the Old Testament, what it means for you, what it means for me. And these books, First and Second Samuel, have done a really good job of that. I'm really excited about this passage today as well. Second Samuel 10. And while you're turning there, and again, it'll be on the screen if you don't have a device or a Bible on you. Um, I don't know if you're a movie buff or not. I always think I am until I talk to somebody that really is, and then I realize I just watch movies. I'm not really a buff. But fun fact is back in 1939 when The Wizard of Oz was released, one of the costumes used in that movie is actually still the most expensive, most valuable costume ever worn by a man in any feature film. And it's the lion, the cowardly lion. If you watch it, it doesn't look spectacular except for the fact that it's 100 pounds. That guy's walking around with a 100-pound suit on. The mane of that lion suit is actually made out of human hair. It was made in Paris. But the skin to the suit is actually real lion skin, right? So no CGI going on. It's real lion skin. They actually had, after the movie had cut, they had stuffed it in a trash bag and put it in the attic of MGM. They found it a long time later, and it took them two years and 20 restoration artists to bring it back to its luster, and then they carried it to auction and sold it for $3.1 million. Can you believe that? Or 31 Bitcoin, if you're so inclined, right? It's an expensive suit. And this is what the owner said, the new proud owner, said, most of us can't relate to not having a brain or a heart. We can all relate to not having enough courage. And it is for this reason I believe the cowardly lion is the character we respond to the most. I agree. I agree. I mean, I don't think I have a brain on a lot of days or a heart on a lot of days, but I do find myself resonating more with the cowardly lion. I, I think you do too. But I also kind of loathe that when I see it in myself as well, the, the cowardice that comes with that character. I think we all do, and I think we loathe it when we see it in other people too. I mean, when you hear of the headlines where law enforcement officers don't rush into a school when there is a shooting, an active shooting, we look at that and we're repulsed by it because of the cowardice of what we had hoped would hold courage. Or if you watch a movie... And you could have a movie with a hero and then a movie with a villain, and you might not like the villain, but if there's a selfish, cowardly person in that movie, that actually repulses us more than even the villain does. In the story of the Wizard of Oz, at the very end, Oz, the wizard, hands the lion something to drink. And he says, drink. The lion says, what is it? Well, answered Oz, if it were inside of you, it would be courage. You know, of course, that courage is always inside one, so that this really cannot be called courage unless you've swallowed it. The lion hesitated no longer, but drank till the dish was empty. How do you feel now, asked Oz. Full of courage. I wished it was that easy, don't you? 
to just drink something. I wish we could all just go to Costco and pick us up a case of, of, of courage, some Kirkland brand courage, right, and bring it home and take a shot every morning and then just tackle the day and hit everything that's hard to deal with. This is what I want you to consider. Three big questions we're going to ask ourselves today to diagnose how we are doing when it comes to this department. I want you to consider what it is in your life that is requiring great courage from you right now. Just simple bravery, right? What is it that's asking you to be strong? Maybe it's ending an addiction or starting a hard conversation. Maybe it's telling somebody about Christ or maybe taking a risk in a direction you feel like God has called you to take but you know that there could be great loss involved. Maybe it's reconciling with an enemy, just simply standing out in a sinking culture. See, this cowardly lion, as with the rest of Team Dorothy in the movie, they had those freaky flying monkeys, right, that would give you nightmares as a little kid. But I'm telling you, as an adult, the things I find myself needing courage for, I feel like they're scarier. There's just a lot of things that threaten loss and failure. Every day we need courage to kill sin or proclaim Jesus in a clear and winsome and compelling way to love the difficult around us, just to do hard things. We need courage to rebuild our marriages. We need courage to steward our finances well. We need courage to forgive people. And the Bible speaks to this heavily. And the Bible also speaks to this need for courage and strength from the opposite end by addressing cowardice. The Bible has a lot to say about cowardice as well. Now, you'll find it in different sounding phrases like their hearts melted like wax or their knees were soft or weak or they lack strength or they are faint hearted or they were trembling. That's how it refers to it. And we're all tempted to some degree, to some degree, to be cowards to bend away from the things that look hard and promise danger and struggle. And that's where I think this passage can help us. So we're going to be in 2 Samuel 10, and we're going to start in verse 9. It's going to set it up for us just a little bit, but not a lot. We're not going to go deep into setting the table for this passage. It's not going to be as important for us. Verse 9 says this, When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of his best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. And then he says this, be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. This passage has been stuck in my head for years. It's a clarion call for me. It galvanizes me, I guess, because it... It pushes me towards hard moments where I execute and I act and I obey and I step into something. And at the same time, it gives me a sense of rest, incredible rest. I was telling someone about this not too long ago, and I described it as an, an exhausted rest. Exhausted physically, but internally, emotionally, spiritually, very still waters. And this passage 
kind of beckons me in that direction. Maybe just to paint this on the timeline, if we were to set the table. This is in the same season that we catch David sending his army out without him. Now, we talked about this last week when we looked at David and Bathsheba. We don't know for sure if this is the same battle or the same set of battles where he actually saw Bathsheba from his rooftop. We we don't know that, but it's speculated that it is, which is why we're dealing with it today. The key is David's not where he needs to be, and so Joab is picking up the slack. If you don't know who Joab is, that's totally fine. He's not all throughout your Bible, but he is a primary in three or four books of the Bible. So he would be David's secretary of war, right? He is the sword that is his right hand. He's a hardened and seasoned soldier, doesn't really have a passion for God. He has a passion to win, right? He is a pretty brutal guy. He's vicious. Far less grace than all the guys around him. I always think about if I had to fight either David or Joab in a bar fight, I'd lose both fights, but I'd, well, I'd rather fight David because this guy has no rules, no nobility, no integrity, no mercy. In fact, if you keep reading his story, it doesn't have a great ending. David, on his deathbed virtually, tells his son Solomon, oh, by the way, before I die, you need to kill Joab. You need to get him out of the way, right? Even when David had revolt against him, Joab stood against David. He's a difficult guy. But we catch this moment of leadership and we're reminded that even in a moment like this, even thugs can tell the truth. Joab is going to lead his people into courage when courage really matters. Knees are weak. They're feeling gutless. Their hearts are melting like wax. And I think it's important, and we say this often when we read the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, but even in the Gospels and in the New Testament, it is very helpful to maybe remember that there is a setting and an ethos and a feel of every passage. It's not just data. There's, there's actually a vibe, I guess you could say. It's, it's important for us to know that we're reading this in a climate-controlled environment with a Starbucks in our hand, right? But this passage had a lot of grit. I want you to imagine being there and seeing the sights, hearing the sounds, sensing the fear, sensing the, the fright, really. You could probably almost smell the fight or flight that's coursing through everybody. I want you to imagine battle-hardened soldiers who are used to winning now showing up and realizing that the battle is set against them. Things aren't looking so good after all. I want you to imagine the first thing they think of is probably the first thing that we would think of. As soon as I die today, my family's next. They conquer me today, they'll conquer them tomorrow because that's what happens. They probably start doing a a little bit of an audit on all the people that are going to suffer based on their failure that day. And I imagine Joab sensing that everyone is leaking courage, so he charges them. He charges them and leads them to see, reminds them really, to see who they're fighting for and who is fighting for them. And he basically says, fight like lions, rest like lambs. We have an opportunity to fight, to be courageous, to be strong, and then just know that God is going to do as God sees fit. And it works. It actually works. That's the good news of the story. Now, the big idea for us is that when the battle is set against you today, and it is in many different fronts, cowardice is always going to show up and contradict courage. It's always going to convince you of that. You're going to see cowardice come, and it's going to whisper in your ear for you to save yourself, to keep your head down. The battle's always going to be set against you. Don't risk yourself. Look out for number one. 
Just go with the flow. Cowardice is going to convince you that bravery is a mistake because it will actually take the status quo and upset it. It will say that tomorrow is a better day for action than today. It will convince you there's nothing wrong with the brave action you want to take, but today's not really the day, is it? No, it's tomorrow. That's what cowardice will tell you. Cowardice will lull you into the current of where everybody else is going who is keeping their head down and just minding their own. Cowardice will tell us that the most important thing is not being hurt. This is what Peter struggled with when he denied Christ three times, is it not? It was just he believed the lie of cowardice and he leaked courage. And listen, cowardice, it's many things. It's also contagious. Joab is starting to sense he's losing the locker room, so he gets in front of it and he speaks to it. And you actually will see this happen often, the fact that cowardice is contagious. We see it with the Ammonites and we see it with the Syrians in this. Only when one group fled did the other group see it and go, we're out of here too. It was contagious, but we also see it here. God speaking to Israel in Deuteronomy 20 says it very effectively. He says, and the officers shall speak further to the people and say, is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. The Lord speaks to Gideon in Judges 7 and says this, Proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. And upon that moment, 22,000 of the people returned. Only 10,000 remained. Weak knees are contagious. They're contagious. Listen, if I had an extra 30 minutes and I just had men in the room, this would be a very different sermon, right? It'd be a very different sermon on what courage looks like and how important it is that we see that when we encourage, which is putting courage into somebody else, how valuable that is in the tight proximity of community. I mean, there have been times where I've walked into a room full of men, leaking courage, not feeling strong, not feeling durable, and then I would listen to a guy talk. And then I would see the response and the rumble in the room, and then I'm ready to run through a wall, right? If, if the room was just women, right, and didn't have any guys in here, it'd be a different sermon if we had an extra 30 minutes, right? Because there are some things that women deal with that are different than what men deal with that call courage out of both of us. And it's just going to look a lot different than the culture, a lot different. But I have to shoot broader than that. And so the second question I'm going to ask is this, not just what is calling courage from your life, but who? Who in your life needs you to be courageous right now? Big question. Who? Thinking people. Because that's what Joab's doing. That's what Joab is calling on. He says this. He says, be courageous, and then he puts two different categories out there. I know you caught it. For your people and then the cities of God. What is he saying there? Right? He's actually not too far from what you would guess if you were to guess. In our world today, for you to be courageous for your people is pretty much what you would think. Your family, um, your tight orbit of friends, those who would be affected by your courage or lack thereof. And everybody is. And it's important for us to know that. When we're less than courageous, when we give in to cowardice, it does not just affect you. It does not affect you. It affects everybody. Now, the cities of our God is a little bit of a harder translation into a time like today as far as application. The cities of God back then um, is indicative of God's possession. Those are his possessions. Those are cities that belong to him. Today, the closest analog I could even consider is possibly the church, which are basically cities within a city, right? So for us to be strong and courageous, for who? 
for those that we love deeply, for those that we are adjacent to life-wise, and those that are in a community like this. That's who we exercise our courage. And when we do, it affects them, and when we don't, it affects them. But this is what I know about courage. Courage always lowers oneself for the benefit of others. There's no, I mean, there's no version of courage where it's just you tackle something dangerous just for yourself. Somebody else is always going to benefit from that. Courage requires unselfing ourselves so that someone else can be blessed. Friends, listen, the reason courage is hard is because there's a huge potential for personal loss. You see, Jesus Christ, and this is where we see a picture of courage even in the gospel story. He's the most courageous man that ever lived. Christ is. And, and the most courageous act we ever saw Christ commit was the one from the cross, right? And what, what do we find himself doing? Unselfing, stooping, lowering, dying for the sake of who? Those with weak knees, those with big heads, those with no spines. As one of my old mentors said once, Jesus did this for men who have big bellies and small chests. <laughs> I think he's probably right. You see, the gospel is a story of courage, where the hero crushes the villain and rescues the coward. And then the coward loves and lives to honor the hero, reflects the hero in a lot of ways. Jesus, he is a man that acted with great execution, great vigor, great might, great strength. But at the same time, you catch a, a, a still river in his soul. He rested. What did he rest in? The promise of the Father. Now listen, there's a multitude of arenas that we can apply real bravery and courage to. We've already named some, fixing your marriage, killing sin, things like that. And you know what that is for you, right? The Holy Spirit probably was maybe putting something in the middle of the table just as we were running through that quick little list of examples. But if I was to speak at one thing today that might be true for the whole room, I'd say we need a deeper courage for the mission that Jesus has called us to. The mission. Of course, getting rid of an addiction, of course, fixing your marriage, things like that. That, that is part of being a healthy missionary, obviously. But we've been commissioned by our general to do something, and yet our hearts, they just, they melt like wax. They're quick to. Here's a passage or two that if you've been in the church for longer than a year, you've heard a million times, and it's Matthew 28, in Acts 1. And Matthew 28 is what we call the Great Commission. This is where our king in general has commissioned you and me. But I want you to pay attention not just to the words, but to the placement of the phrases in the architecture of this, because it matters. It matters. Matthew 28, we're going to see two things, a promise and a mandate. Here's the promise. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a promise he has made. He holds it all. He's got all the muscle. He's got all the authority. That's the promise. Now's the mandate. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then he comes back with another mandate. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So you see the mandate shoehorned between two promises. And that's not on accident. That's, that, that's not just accidentally dropped on the page. Acts 1.8, we see the same thing. Here's the promise. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then the mandate. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the mandate. We see this all the time. God, before he gives you 
an imperative of what you do. He will always anchor it in an, what they call an indicative of who you are, right? Always. Any, any New Testament letter you see Paul write, you always have him saying, these are the things we do as a people of God, imperatives, but it's always after the indicative. This is who you are in God, and this is who God is to you, right? It's important that we keep that order, right? That we know that what we do is coming from a place of who, who we are in him. If you, if you swap it, that's where we get into danger, right? Where we do things so that he loves us. We do things so that we're blessed. It's not like that, though. The gospel, I mean, that wouldn't be the gospel. The gospel swaps it. God is so good to you, therefore you can go. And that's how we see these passages. We have an imperative. God has all the authority, all of it, and he is with us always. So we're never alone. Indicative. What do we do? We go and we make disciples. Imperative. See, these mandates, they always require promises to be made to us. This is where courage comes from. Trusting a promise. It's very simple. It's not very magical. This is trusting a promise. What I have found is when I step out of sync with God's mission, it's usually in favor of my own mission, by the way. We don't step out of God's mission into a vacuum. We're all building sandcastles to some degree. When I step out of sync with the mission of God, I will, it will typically be over a place of not trusting his promises and therefore cowardice. Cowardice. I, I just forget who I am. I, for, I forget what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm no longer just sojourning as some pilgrim. I've taken up residence here. This is my world. I've made it my home. I have just forgotten so much. I've forgotten that this world will pass away. And then when the battle, quote unquote, sets itself against me, I'm much more tempted to look out for myself and my own sandcastle. I want to ask you a third question. Where do you find the battle set against you today? Not, not what is calling courage from you, who is calling courage from you. Where do you just look across the landscape and you say, oh man, I'm flanked. This doesn't look good. Something is being required from me and I don't have it. And listen, there's something telling you that tomorrow is a far better day than today to do something hard. There's something that could very well be telling you that the status quo, as much as you don't like it, it's better than the pain of sacrifice. And it's a lie. The, the lie is, is that it's just as good to get God to bless your own mission than to step into his. If we could just somehow get, get our vision and our mission before the Lord and get him to cleanse it or bless it, right, make our goals his goals, then we can feel comfortable in this life. Not so. Listen, this is what it says in Matthew 8, 21. One of the disciples, and when it says disciples, he's not talking about the original 12, just a student of Christ looking to follow Christ in Matthew 8. He says, Lord, let me go First, and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Sounds a bit harsh, right? This is an idiom, okay? It's important to get behind this because what it reads, this is how it reads. It reads like, hey, Jesus, this all sounds good and I would love to jump on board and all. My dad died like a few hours ago. We got a funeral in the next day or so. Can I, can I like do that quick and then hitch a ride with you guys? Because I really want to. And Jesus goes, no. Let the dead bury their own, and then turns and then walks off. That is not what's happening right now. It's an idiom that when you say, let me bury my father, it means let me wait until my father has passed. Most scholars agree that this guy's probably still alive. What it means is, is he's kind of in his twilight years. He's in his last chapter, right? I'm the firstborn, or I'm one of the kids. I, let's wait for him to die. 
we'll mourn him, which takes quite a while. We'll grieve him, which takes quite a while. We'll order the estate in the next chapter of life. Effectively, he's looking to postpone the mission. Little, listen, Little has done more harm to the witness of the church than postponing the mission to a better day to fight. Little. We work so hard at avoiding risking ourselves because we just think it's going to bring us more joy. But listen, the very life we're trying to hold on to, the very castles we build around us, they slip through our fingers. They slip right through. We try to save our lives and live on God's mission at the same time. One requires the death of the other, though. Luke 9.23, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And we forfeit so much by just residing on the sidelines, just enough to avoid the loss, the pain, that courage will call out. But friends, listen, if we're not about the work of proclaiming and embodying the gospel, in order to make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples who will. If we're not about the work, and when I say work, I mean praying, trying, failing, getting up, trying again, speaking, failing, getting shut down, persecution, getting up, trying again. If we're not about the work of making disciples by how we proclaim and live the gospel, we are off mission. Off mission. And I don't know what you do for a living. I don't know what your average day looks like. We believe here that if you are a Christian, you are in fact a missionary. But that doesn't mean that everyone's doing the same thing. You guys got different people spinning in your orbit than I do. We all have different rhythms. We all have different capacities. We all have different gift sets. Everything is different. We get that. But if your life is not about the business of propagating the gospel that will make disciple leaders in all areas of life that will keep doing the same thing, we're off mission. We're just off mission. And I think the paralysis we get whenever we see the battle set against us, it actually is the thing that's preventing us from experiencing a very bottomless joy that God has for us. Joy. I mean, I know it's counterintuitive what I'm saying right now, that being a courageous missionary brings joy. I mean, this is the worst sales pitch in history, right? Suffer by being courageous, lose a bunch, pain, you're sure going to decrease. It's going to cost you everything, and it's awesome. That's the pitch. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 3, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. I find this to be true. I find that in my hardest moments of suffering for the mission, it has brought me the deepest moments of intimacy and therefore joy with Jesus. I'm not just saying that because that's something a pastor is supposed to say. Listen, I had a hard couple of weeks, about a month and a half or so ago, just of suffering, hard enough to lose sleep, hard enough to cry, and yet in the middle of the pain that I just wanted to go, I just wanted the dark cloud to move on by so I could get back on track with life. That's what I wanted. In that moment still I felt this gospel wakefulness I couldn't put a price on. I find this always to be true. It doesn't mean I don't want the pain to go away, but there's a bittersweet joy that comes. I feel awake, I feel alive, I sense the value of mission anew. I'm reminded of certain truths that I have nothing to lose. I have everything to gain. This isn't my home. I'm reminded of these. Here's a fact for you. Missional suffering increases your ability to enjoy Jesus. If you want to enjoy Jesus more 
in the last half of this year than in the first. And I know a lot of us charged into the year, me one of them, I always had these lofty expectations. My, my list of, of goals for the year is pretty, pretty out of control. And I always find myself getting around the 4th of July looking back and going, wow, man, why do I do this every year? I put so many goals up there and I don't achieve like half of them. Is, that, is it me? Is it my goal making? If you want to just love Jesus, you just want to enjoy Jesus more in the next six months than you did the first, get on mission. Get on mission. The suffering it brings will pull you close. Embody the gospel with your life. Proclaim the gospel with your mouth. Make disciples. Fail. Try again. Trust. Act. Fail. Try again. Pray. Over and over again. And when you lay your life down, you will find a joy that just, it won't evaporate. It won't. But you cannot experience that kind of joy with the Lord trying to keep the status quo. All a coward gets is a wasted life. That's it. That's it. And it, and it makes me sad just thinking about it. It's one of the reasons I don't like going to Facebook. Or, and I'm not going to rip on social media. I get it. But, but one of the reasons I don't like is because I'm old enough to see people that I grew up with that loved Jesus more than me, that led me, that are now just off mission. And I hate seeing what it looks like. I hate it. Listen, this is one thing we know about courage. Courage on God's mission, you will find your soul rested. It sounds exhausting, what I'm saying, and yet you'll find a deep peace and a rest. We exhaust ourselves courageously, but we find ourselves rested. This is why Joab says in, in the passage for today, may the Lord do what seems good to him. We rest knowing that God goes before us. Sounds wrong, doesn't it? It just sounds like it's two things that don't fit. Psalm 27, 14 says it this way, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. We see the same dynamic playing with itself right there. We involve ourselves in spiritual arenas that God already owns. He's the one calling people to himself. He's the one doing that. He's drawing people. He's the one softening hearts. He's the one changing hearts. He brings a conviction. He goes before us. He moves mountains. He's the one opening ears. He's the one opening eyes. He's the one doing this. We just follow along. We just step out courageously and walk behind what he's doing. Listen, that neighbor that you have that you've doubted will ever love Jesus, the one that you always pray for, the one that you always struggle trying to find new words to say the same things, you've always wondered if you can win them to Jesus. And let me just say, you alone, you, you cannot. You're just not that good. I'm not either. Right? We jumble our words. One day we're too passive. The next day we're too aggressive. We don't know how to work the gas and the brake pedal when it comes to things like evangelism or mission. And I just don't have what it takes to change a heart. I'm, I'm an okay communicator. I don't have what it takes to change a heart. God, however, lifts all of the heavy weight. I was thinking about this this morning when I was looking over this, and I, I mean, I had forgotten that this had even happened. I think I might have told the story like a dozen years ago. But when I was a second, second year senior in college, I was a Christian, and I was really flexing my evangelical muscle. I was pre, if they moved and had a pulse, I was telling them about Jesus, right? It's a limited effect. You can, you can, I mean, I was brand new in the Lord, so I'm mixing my words up, but there was one guy 
a few years older than me. And you know when you go through college, as, as you move through it, you start seeing the same people over and over again for the same classes. You're going through the same thing. And it was one of those guys. I just knew if I walked in the classroom, he was going to be there. Went to lunch all the time. We were always in the same study groups. And I told that guy about Jesus all the time, man. I'm looking for new words, new phrases. I'm getting coaching from my mentors. How do I tell this guy? What do I bring him to? Doing anything I can. Nothing. Nothing. He was just made of brass. Everything bounced off of him. And then my very, very last semester of college, I remember coming into a high-level class, sitting down right next to him, and he looks over at me and he goes, Luke, listen. I had a dream over the summer, and Jesus spoke to me. He's like, and I woke up, and I was changed. He's like, nah, I don't know if that, if that dream is, like, really Jesus or not, but it, it, it made me pick up the Bible. And then I just found the closest church I could, and I went in, and I found the pastor, and, and, I, and I told him what God was doing, and that guy led me to Jesus, and I'm just here to tell you, I love Jesus right now. And you know what I thought? Yo, God, I did all the work there. <laughs> I told this guy for years about Jesus. You do it in a dream like that? Not fair. But I never, had the, I never had the ability to change his heart. One dream. Man, God does all the work. All we do is we embody the gospel, we vocalize the gospel in clear and winsome ways to win a very hard city. That's what mission is. Do your best. God will do as he sees fit. Do your best. Exhaust yourself for the glory of God and let him do what he has wisely planned, what he has deemed the most glorious. Let him do that. And this we can rest. That we can trust. So as we start to maybe close this out, what about when you and I fail in cowardice? What shred of good news is there for those habitual rebels who just live in fear? Weak knees all the time. I think what you and I can do today is we can carry our cowardice to the cross. The gospel is perfect for the gutless and the weak need. The gospel is perfect for cowards. And, and listen, cowards are perfect for the gospel. We're perfect for Christ in this way, right? He is the hero who defeated the villain and won the coward. And the cross is this beautiful place, a beautiful sanctuary for laying down a cowardly life. It's one of the things we celebrate when we take communion. As we hold an emblem of body and an, and an emblem of blood, we see this, this place where we lay down things, where we carry our sin, and then when we get up and we leave that moment of communion, we don't carry it with us anymore. Listen, Jesus fits us with his strength when our knees just aren't steady anymore. We're paralyzed with fear. He doesn't just bring us courage. He brings us joy. He brings us rest. Hmm. If you're failing to be courageous today, look to the cross. It's the logo, the emblem of a promise maker who keeps his promises. And if we have a good promise maker that we know keeps his promises, we can be courageous. If he kept some of them, we couldn't have any faith in that. You could never rest. You could never trust. But he's never broken a promise. We could be as courageous as we want to be. You know, towards the end of that scene with Oz and the lion that we started earlier, one of the things that Oz says to the cowardly lion is there is no living thing that is not unafraid or not afraid when it faces danger. True courage is in facing danger when you are afraid. The lion repeats to him, I shall really be very unhappy unless you give me the sort of courage that makes one forget 
he is afraid. When Jesus tells us, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you always to the end of the age. We have so much room to change here, not just now, but every day. I have to repent for living on my own mission, for trying to baptize my own plans and call them his. Room to repent for melting like wax. Uh, Room to repent for pushing off to tomorrow hard things that really are best done today. So much room to go to the cross and leave them there. Jesus, here's my cowardice. Please take it. I need courage. And as we step into that mission as a repentant people, we will find a joy. You'll find it. You won't be able to put your finger on it, but you'll, you'll sense it. You'll sense, wow, I, this is I'm like in a real miserable week right now, and yet I am oddly enjoying Christ much more than I, than I think I would in a moment like this. That's it, that's it working right there. And listen, I know not everybody loves Jesus that I'm talking to, people watching. Not everybody is in love with Jesus, enjoys Jesus. The last part of that Luke passage, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? What does it profit? I mean, isn't that what you spend your whole life doing? That's what I spent my whole life doing before Christ. Just looking to profit, profit, gain the whole world, have my plans, build my castle, accomplish my mission, but it's not working for you. And I know it's not working for you because it didn't work for me. And I know also it's never worked for anybody. But there is a place. There's a place we could lay down our own plans, our own will, our own mission, our own cowardice. And it's at the foot of a cross where we see Jesus, the most courageous person who ever lived, lower himself for cowards as he defeats an enemy. And friend, there's a mission too. No longer do you have to walk this path of accomplishing your own mission, which changes as quick as the seasons do. But there is one etched in granite, and it's the very plan and love of God for all of the cosmos, and we get to play a part in that. We get to exhaust ourselves and then watch as he comes along and does brilliant and beautiful things.